If you have a Bible, and we're going to be reading uh, big chunks of Luke chapter 22 uh, this morning. Um, Sarah will wonderfully put the words on the screen as we go along as well. But this morning, we're going to see that Jesus is not like us. So let's read Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death. For they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So they consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, of which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So this Sunday, we are looking at Jesus and his road to the cross. And this Sunday works as a bit of a a stopgap between the preaching series we've just finished and next Sunday, where we will be celebrating Easter. Because if you've been uh, with us here at Life Church uh, for the last few months, uh, you will know that we've been looking at the God is series. We've been looking at wonderful things, that God is holy, that God is love, He's angry at sin, yet he's gracious and compassionate, that he's utterly in control, unchanging and glorious. What a wonderful three months it has been looking at the character of God together. And next week, we celebrate Easter. But this Sunday, we'll sit as a little bit of a bridge between the two, because what I want to do this Sunday is we look at Jesus walking to the cross in Luke chapter 22. We won't quite get there, by the way, so come along to Good Friday to see what happens next. But as we see Jesus walk to the cross, we will go back to the very first sermon in the Goddess series and we'll realise Jesus is not like us. Jesus is not like us. That was our first sermon. God is not like us. And we'll see that in vibrant contrast today that Jesus did what no one else was able to do. So this morning... As we read through big chunks of Luke chapter 22, we'll see Jesus go from the Last Supper, the Passover meal with his disciples. We'll see him go to the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest, and then all the way up to the high priest's front door where he is about to be convicted before his crucifixion. Now, as we do this walk, you might think the gospel The gospel author Luke, great name, Luke would be, oh, I didn't say that. Good morning. I always say that. My name's Luke. I'm one of the leaders here at Life Church. Sorry, I I always say that. I forget to. Um, Luke, who wrote this gospel account, you think as we get towards the end of the story, he'd just be focusing on Jesus. You think all the side characters start to fade into the background and it just becomes about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that's right. In some ways it does. But in other ways, it's fascinating how this This chapter right at the end of Jesus' journey before his crucifixion is filled with references to the disciples. It's filled with reactions and interactions with the disciples and foremost with Peter. Why does Luke do this? Well, I'm sure there are many wonderful reasons. But one of them is to bring brilliant contrast, vibrant contrast to show us that Jesus is not like them. No, Jesus is not like us. Look, Jesus is fully man, 
fully man. Actually, the Bible says he's like us in every way, yet was without sin. And we will see that actually Jesus did what only he could do this morning. And that is good news. And that's where Luke, the the gospel author, starts in verse 7. He says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And you might notice in a few verses time, they break bread together, they drink wine, but there's no mention of a lamb because Jesus is the lamb of the Passover. So let's carry on reading. We're going to read big chunks of uh, this passage today. Not all of it, uh, but big chunks of it. So let's pick up from verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Do you know the feeling when you sit with good friends and um, maybe it's an early evening and you're chatting and you're chatting and the conversation goes from here and it goes to there and, and before you know it, it's three in the morning and you don't know how you got to the topic you're on, but it's all good because they're good conversations with good people and no one really minds. The conversation just flows. Or maybe you also know the feeling, quite a different but related feeling, when you're trying to have that conversation with the person that's really important. Maybe it's with your parent. Maybe it's with a spouse. Maybe it's with a colleague. And no matter how hard you try, you keep trying to bring the conversation back to the point, but it gets sidetracked or hijacked. And so the point never gets made. I wonder what it was like to sit with the Lord around the Last Supper. This was the Passover meal a meal that the Jews celebrated every year to remember over a thousand years before how God had miraculously saved the people of Israel from slavery and oppression. This was a time of great celebrating what God had achieved. And yet I wonder what it would have felt like as Jesus changed the mood slightly, actually quite dramatically, because he talked, not for the first time, he talked again about his imminent death. In verse 15, he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is, uh, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He tells him his body will be broken, his blood will be spilt. It is his death that he's been talking about for a little while now that is about to happen. I wonder what it would have been like to be in the room as that conversation went on. But despite the solemn topic, did you notice how quickly the conversation changed? The disciples, they're taken aback 
by Jesus speaking about this, speaking about one who would betray. Verse 23 says, they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And what may have begun as, Lord, who could do this to you? Might have evolved into, Lord, we would never betray you, which might have evolved into, Lord, I would never betray you, which soon could have descended into, Lord, personally, I don't think Barnabas is very trustworthy anyway. Look at his beard. And so the conversation descended and descended. Because the conversation turns from being about Jesus and his imminent death, about their Lord and teacher who they had given everything to be with him and follow him, and it becomes a nasty finger-pointing exercise. And it doesn't end there. Verse 24 says this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Your Bibles will have a heading between those two verses, but the heading doesn't exist in the text. Those two things are right next to each other. Uh, They they start finger-pointing, and then immediately what happens? A conversation about which of them is the greatest. The conversation moves from, I wouldn't let Jesus down, to, I wouldn't let Jesus down because I'm a better disciple than you. I walked with him on water. I healed three people in Jesus' name. He called me the true Israelite. No, I'm a better disciple than you. Soon the conversation moves so far along, it will be easy to forget that it began with Jesus telling them that he was about to die. Sometimes we can be so wrapped up with doing the Christian thing we forget Christ. Sometimes maybe these words come out of our mouths. Maybe we just think them in our heads, but we think them nonetheless. I never miss a Sunday. I put hours into the church. I actually read my Bible every morning at six. Now they're good things. They're good things if they're acts of worship to God because we have to be careful. Careful not to prize what we do rather than Christ himself. Prize doing Christian things rather than Christ. Because when we make it about my role, about my ministry, about what I want to see happen in church and my faith, we make it about me. But Jesus is not like us. As the disciples go on to bicker about who is the greatest among them, this is what Jesus started the conversation with. Verse 19. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. You see, Jesus is not like us. When we take, he gives. When we think of ourselves, he thinks of us. Jesus is not like us because at the cross, the moment that he was pointing to in this meal, the moment we will celebrate on Good Friday in a special way, but that we celebrate every day of our lives as Christians at the cross, the sinless one died for the sinful, the selfless for the selfish, the one who needed nothing for us, who our every need is met in him because Jesus is not like us. Because where we take, he gives. We no longer have to put ourselves first. We sometimes put ourselves first because we worry that no one else will put us first. We sometimes, if we're honest, put ourselves first because we're selfish and proud. But we don't have to do that anymore. Because if we have one who deserves all the glory. We saw that last week, didn't we? We have one who is first. And yet he lay his life down for us. 
this is my body given for you. We no longer have to try and elevate ourselves. We no longer should elevate ourselves because he is the one who had everything and let, yet lay it down for us. This is my body given for you. We take, but he gives. Let's carry on reading from verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I, pr I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is Jesus talking, by the way. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter is um, a wonderful character in the Bible. Very confusingly, I think he has four names in the Bible. He's sometimes Peter, because that's the name Jesus gave him. He's Simon, that's what he was born with. He calls himself Simeon somewhere because he's just having fun. And he's sometimes called Cephas, which is Peter, but in a different language. So Peter's got a lot of names, but we, we call him Simon Peter to try and remember both of them. But this is Peter here declaring his allegiance to Jesus. An interesting insight, profound insight. To let someone down, to truly let someone down, it's devastating. When I was in year seven, when I was um, 12 years old, uh, I told one of my friends who I thought I could trust that I did ballet, but they couldn't tell anyone. So what was the first thing they did? They told someone. Now I look back on that and I can laugh. But it wasn't funny at the time. It wasn't funny at the time. It broke me. Because to have someone let you down, a best friend, to betray your trust is devastating. To have the promise of a parent to finally come through, for them to only tell you again, oh, I'm really sorry I couldn't. It crushes us. To have your boss call you in for a last minute meeting saying, I know I said we could, but it won't happen this year. To be let down is devastating. And to let someone else down, someone who trusts you, can sometimes be too much to bear. To have someone look you in the eye and said, you should have been there for me, and you know they're right. It gets us. I've been there. I've heard that. These are words you don't forget. And Peter, for all his flaws, he loved Jesus. He dropped everything to follow him three years before. He went everywhere with him. He clinged to every word. He was always the first to volunteer, wasn't he? He asked the questions no one asked. He got out the boat when no one else did. He said the things that no one else said. And it means he got the biggest rebukes and he got the most public kind of embarrassments. But he did everything for Jesus. He loved him. And here again, Peter's the one who speaks. Peter's the one who has a special conversation with the Lord. These are not empty words that Peter's saying when he says, I'll go with you to prison and to death. He's not, he's not just kind of saying that. He means it. He declares his allegiance to Jesus and he means every word. But we will have to come back to these words later because some of you will know that he isn't true to his promise. Some of you will know the next bit of the story. That as Jesus says to him, I'm sorry, Peter, but you will deny me that Jesus is right. Peter would make the promise, but he wouldn't keep it. And so we see again, Jesus is not like us. 
Because for all the best intentions, though Peter wanted to be there for Jesus, he was going to let him down. But Jesus never failed Peter. Jesus never failed him. Because we make promises. Jesus keeps promises. We make promises, but Jesus keeps promises. Jesus, the incarnate God who is unchanging. Do you remember we did that about a month ago? God is unchanging. He is always true to his word. When he says it, he means it. So we can trust that he will keep us safe to the end. See, we can have no confidence in ourselves. We make the little promises, don't we? I'll do better next time. I'll wake up five minutes earlier. I'll make up for the mistakes that I've done. But if we're honest, they only last so long. And then we find ourselves letting him down again, letting ourselves down again and letting others down again. But you see, following Jesus isn't about trying to cling to God with our fingernails making more and more promises that, oh, I know I didn't do it again yesterday, Lord, but this time I promise I'll be better. No, that's clinging to God with our fingernails, but that's not Christianity. Following Jesus is being held in his nail-marked hands, secure in the one who never breaks his word for us. Jesus is a God-man of his word. He is the one who will never leave you or forsake you. The good work he has started in you, he will bring to completion and not one of his sheep will be lost. Why? Because when he makes those promises, we believe him because all of the yes and amens of scripture are found in Christ. Jesus is not like us because where we fail, he succeeds. Where we cannot, he certainly can. And although we make promises, Christ keeps promises. Let's keep reading from verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, And knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to kiss Jesus. But Jesus said to him, Judas, will you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off here. And healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him, bringing him into the high priest's home, and Peter was following at a distance. 
Here again, we find two distinct contrasts between the disciples and Jesus. Interestingly, uh, this, the other gospels tell us that it's actually Peter who is the common denominator in all of these things. Matthew's gospel tells us that it was Peter, James and John who were the ones praying with Jesus in Gethsemane. And John's gospel tells it, us that it was Peter who went to grab the sword. And we see these two great contrasts here between Jesus and Peter. And the first is this. And we see it as Jesus prays. Jesus tells Peter and the others to pray they will not enter into temptation. He tells them to petition to the Father to keep them safe when Satan attacks. When in just a few hours, Satan will try and scatter them. Try and say, it's over, guys. Jesus is defeated. That's what Satan's going to try and do. And Jesus says, pray that you'll not enter into temptation. He urges them, fight in prayer. The stakes could not be higher. But when Jesus returns, they're asleep. Now, the phrase that Luke uses, the gospel author is odd, isn't it? It says they were sleeping for sorrow. You see, the disciples, they weren't sleeping because they didn't think it was serious. They weren't sleeping because they couldn't care. They were sleeping because they were emotionally and physically exhausted. They were overwhelmed by what was happening. They, they, they were disoriented and confused and they couldn't cope. And so even though Jesus said, stay up to pray, they, they were exhausted and they fell asleep. And then moments later, Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, the one who is betraying Jesus, and a crowd arrived to arrest him. And Peter, who had hours earlier promised, I'll go with you, where? To prison and to death. He knows this is the moment. This is the moment that Jesus is under threat. He's in danger. And so he grabs his sword. He slices at the nearest person he can find. He raises it again, only for Jesus to shout, enough, stop. When we feel out of control, we panic. We try and take back control. We try and find a way that we can be in the driving seat again. We try and find a way that we don't feel quite as vulnerable and exposed as deep down we know we are. And Peter, realizing he had fallen asleep on the job, the thing that Jesus had just asked him to do, he wasn't able to do. He realizes, no, now is the time. I've got to act. He doubles down. He prepares himself and he acts. And Peter, as he so often does, rather than standing by Jesus' side in the way that he should be, finds himself standing in Jesus' way. You see, Peter didn't realize he was fighting the wrong fight. Peter saw an armed mob, and he thought that was the battle. But the difference was Jesus knew the battle had already happened. Jesus knew that it was in the time of prayer before the Father, that that was where he was preparing himself for the cross that was ahead. Listen to what he says. Jesus says this to the chief priests and their, their thugs. In verse 20, uh, 52, he says, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour. What hour is it? It's the middle of the night. This is your hour and the power of darkness. You see, Jesus wasn't preparing himself when he was before the Father in prayer. He wasn't preparing himself to, to rough up a few high priest thugs. And he wasn't preparing himself even to take on a Roman legion. Because to fight the Romans, you need violence. 
But Jesus was preparing himself to defeat an enemy which was much greater than any sword could ever overcome. You see, the true fight happened when Peter was sleeping. When Jesus was preparing himself before the Father for the cross that was ahead. Jesus literally sweated blood at that moment. The trauma of contending in the heavenly realm about the great thing that he was about to do brought sweat of blood onto his brow, foreshadowing the blood that would be spilt just hours later. You see, while the disciples were asleep, asleep for sorrow, it says Jesus prayed more earnestly. And what did he pray? He prayed, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Jesus called on his father that he might have the strength to go to the cross. The cross, that brutal instrument that the Romans used to humiliate their enemies, but the place where Christ would humiliate Satan. Jesus was preparing himself for the time where he would defeat the enemies of God, Satan, sin, and death. Peter thought a sword would give him strength in the moment of need because he thought that the fight was against men. But Christ knew the true enemy and exactly how to defeat him because Jesus is not like us. When we're weak, and we are weak, Christ is strong. When we panic because we don't know what battles we're meant to be fighting, we realize that Christ has already overcome for us. We are weak, but he is strong. And you see, Jesus is in control. So much of our lives we spend trying to get back in control. So much of our lives we try to to pretend that we're not as vulnerable and as exposed as deep down we know we really are. But the problem is, when we do that, we're fighting the wrong fight. When we do that, we're fighting the wrong fight. Because if you're living for comfort, as I so often do, The cross is no hope for you because the cross is not comfortable. Following the way of Jesus leads to great glory with him forever, but it is a road of suffering before then. And if we're living to be in control ourselves, well, putting faith in another is no comfort to us because it's doing the exact opposite. Faith is saying, not my way, Lord, but yours. Not trusting myself, Lord, but you. But if we're living for Christ, for freedom from sin that he's won, for sweet communion with the Father he's reconciled us to, for the eternal glory of being in fellowship with him forever, then the cross is a great comfort to us because we know that the way to Jesus has been made through the cross. The way to reconciliation with the Father has been made by his blood. When we take it into our own hands, we fight the wrong fight. But if we see what the true fight is, the defeat of Satan the overcoming of sin, and for death to be no more, Christ has already won the victory. Because Jesus is not like us, when we are weak, he is strong. Let's read from verse 54. Then they seized him, that's Jesus, they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, 
This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We have walked through most of chapter 22 this morning. And we have followed Peter and the disciples closely. And in this final passage we read today, we leave Peter for his part in the story until a little bit later on after the resurrection. This is the last scene of Jesus and Peter interacting. And it's a bleak way that the story ends. We started around the Passover table, didn't we? The conversation with the disciples that started about Jesus' death but quickly became about them. Then we followed Jesus to the garden and while he was praying earnestly in agony, the disciples overwhelmed and overcome were asleep. We saw Judas enter the garden with the thugs around him and they arrested Jesus and Peter chose violence rather than trusting Jesus and received the Lord's rebuke. And now after the arrest, we see Jesus standing at a kangaroo court at the entrance of the high priest's house but Peter is still following him. And at this moment, we see a strange mix of bravery and cowardice. Because remember, Peter's the only one who's followed him to the high priest's house. We don't hear about anyone else going. Peter, as he so often did, was the one who stepped out and followed him there. But as he sits down, he realizes he's surrounded by the friends of the man he's just violently attacked. He realizes that his Lord and Master is about to go into a trial where who knows what will happen, and he's standing right on the precipice of that too. And so when the pressure comes and he's asked, weren't you with him? He buckles. You see, Peter fell asleep when he was meant to be praying. He used violence when he was meant to trust him. And now his shame is complete. He denies the Lord just as Jesus predicted. The promise of to prison and even to death that he declared not that many hours before now seems long gone. Peter's failed him. And when Jesus looks him in the eyes, he realizes that. He weeps bitterly because Jesus pierces into his soul and he realizes the way he has failed his Lord and Master. My dear friends, there is good news coming, but we are a lot like Peter. We are weak, we are sinful, we are full of shame, and we're afraid. Like Peter, we are utter failures. But there is good news, because Christ is not like us. When we take, he gives. 
Though we make promises, he keeps promises. When we are weak, there he is strong. When we panic, there he is in control. And though we fail him, Christ will never fail us because only Christ was able to go where he went. Only Jesus would follow through the things that he was preparing himself for before the Father in the garden and go to the cross. Only Jesus did that. Only he could. I don't know if you remember, but right at the beginning, Luke begins the account in verse 7 by saying, Today was the day of unleavened bread, in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus had to do it. No one else could. He had to do it. And Jesus is not like us because he could and he did. Jesus is amazing. But I've just called you failures. I've called myself a failure. And you might be sitting here listening, saying, that's amazing that Jesus did what we couldn't do. But I still feel like Peter. I still know my failures. I'm still broken because of my history and the sin that still clings to me. Maybe you don't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're exploring here with us. Well, if that's true, you're so welcome here. But maybe you think, Look, I, know, I know my life. I know the mess I'm in. I know the sin or the wickedness or the wrong that I've done. I know the wrong that others have done to me. And I know as hard as I try, I can't get myself out of this. Maybe you're a believer. And you say, to be honest, I put on a brave face, but I weep bitterly when no one's looking. I feel how Peter did when no one else knows. But there's good news. There's good news. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter when they had that little conversation early on? He said a few things, actually. And I bet you remember one of them. One of the things he said is, Peter, you will deny me. We remember that, don't we? We wouldn't forget that. But you know he said something else before that. What did he say? Verse 31, let's rewind. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew he would fail. Jesus knew he would fail. He knew that Peter was selfish that he was weak, that he would deny him. Jesus knew that, but he commissioned him anyway. Peter, when you have turned. Isn't that incredible? Though Peter failed Jesus, and to him it felt like game over. There was no coming back from this one. It was a write-off. His life, well, maybe he'd limp on, but, but, but he'd failed the one that he, he loved. But Jesus, he saw beyond the failure. Jesus saw beyond the failure he saw through death into resurrection. You see, there is no person in the kingdom of God who is too broken. There is no sinner who is too stained, no crime which is too heinous. There is no line that is too far crossed that Jesus cannot redeem. You have not been saved to sit by yourself and wallow in your shame because Jesus knows you and he knows your failure. And he sees beyond it, through death, into the resurrection. You see, we don't have to stay in that place. If that's you this morning and you feel the bitterness that that Peter felt when Jesus looked into his eyes, you feel the shame that surrounds your life. Jesus knew and he commissioned you through it. He said, I know the death you're experiencing 
but I have come to give you new life beyond that. For those of you who know that you've been holding him at arm's length, maybe indulging in sin that you have not been willing to give up, or fear of your failures that you don't really believe that Jesus can redeem, hear the words of Jesus this morning. When you have turned. Because he knows your failures. He knows your sin. He knows your inability and he knows your wrong motives in your heart and he is compassionate and gracious to you. And he calls you to turn and live for him. Live a new life, not based in death, but in resurrection. No longer defined by your failure, but by his victory. You see, Jesus is not like us because when we see our lives as a write-off, he sees beyond it. When we see death, he knows the resurrection is just round the corner. My dear friends, we're going to ask God to speak to us now. He has been speaking, but I think uh, as I was preparing this, there are certain things that God wants to do. So um, for me, I find that easiest to respond to the Lord uh, when I'm standing, when I'm kind of engaging with him. So if you'd like to, you can stand, but you don't have to. But let's stand if we'd like to. And we're going to respond to God. Um, Gaz and others are going to um, come up. But we're not going to rush on from this moment, okay? And we're going to ask the Lord to speak to us. Because there have been lots of things we have seen in this passage. That Jesus is not like us. Jesus is not in any way like us. I mean, he was in every way like us, yet was without sin. But that made all the difference. Because when we made the promises and broke them, he kept the promises. When we were weak, he was strong. When we panicked, he stayed in control. And though we fail him, Christ will never fail us. So I'm just going to ask that the Holy Spirit will speak to us now. And if I'm honest with you, we're going to go from there. Okay? That might be a minute that we're just going to spend time responding. That might be a lot of minutes. Holy Spirit, we pray as we've heard the word of Christ declared to us, as we've heard the gospel proclaimed, some of us who maybe for the first time are stirred by your gospel call, that you are the one who is able to give us new life. Some of us, there are other things that have been or are hitting home. Holy Spirit, you are the one who is God with us and God among us. And so I just pray now that you would speak. Lord, that you would heal Lord, you would release. And Lord, you would take us from death to life. 